0: In 1 Corinthians 13.1, the Apostle Paul said, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. You all cheer, you all laugh, but you had about enough, didn't you? <laughs> you need more. You're not tuning in to where's the cymbal crashing station on Spotify that's not a thing. Why? Because it's ugly. And that's what the scripture tells us a life of love is like. You can speak in the tongues of men and angels. You can sacrifice yourself. You can do all sorts of incredible, impressive acts. But if you have not love, Paul says in First Corinthians 13, you have nothing. Our world values love. And that's good, that's probably uh, one of the fruits of Christian influence over the last 2,000 years, that our world values love. There's lots of songs about love, there's lots of stories about love, there's lots of slogans and bumper sticker type phrases about love. The question always, though, is, what is love? If you grew up in the 90s like I did, you just thought, what is love? Right? Like you, just, you, you know the songs. What is love? Well, interestingly, the scripture says that God is love. And here's a quote about that by Jonathan Lehman that I love. He says this, God is love, says scripture, 1 John 4, 8. It's one of the weightiest and most precious truths imaginable for a Christian. God is love like oceans are wet and suns are hot. Love is essential. Love is definitional of God. The one who designed comets and acorns, who sustains our souls and bodies, who knows every one of our days before each comes to be, he is love. Let's slow down. We need to think about what the Bible means here. When it says God is love, it's not saying there is this thing out there called love and God measures up to it. There is no dictionary definition of love hovering outside the universe, independent of God, so that God answers to it. Rather, God in himself provides the definition, the reality of what love is. Love is not an abstract concept, but a personal quality of God. People today might say they love love, but if they reject God, they don't really love love. Isn't that interesting? I I was so struck by in that quote is the idea that there's not a definition out there that somehow God has to meet to say he's love. No, it's in him. And I know there are people, maybe some of you tonight, who'd say, yeah, I love love, but I don't know if I love God. And I just want to tell you, I get that. And I, I, I don't want to try to scorn you, but rather to say, maybe the reason you love love is because there's a God who is love. And he's the one that makes love lovely. What is love? Well, God is love. But specifically, God made flesh in Jesus is love. Enter Jesus, right? The last time I was on this stage preaching to you, it was from John 3 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever would believe in him wouldn't perish but have eternal life. God so loved the world. That he gave his son, enter Jesus. Now, here's what struck me as I've been preparing this series is that we often say that Jesus is God, and that's true. And therefore, we also say that Jesus is like God. That if you want to know who God is, you have to look at Jesus. But think about this God is like Jesus. the reason I think that's so significant is because I think if most of us were asked to describe God, we would describe a person that wouldn't sound very much like Jesus, which shows that maybe we're getting it wrong. We were having this conversation at the dinner table the other night as we were talking about the Garden of Eden and the creation story, and we were talking about the question, what do you think it would have felt like in the garden to just walk with God? and we were having that whole thing and my mind just instantly went to I think it would feel like walking with Jesus but that's not how we typically flinch Jesus is a remarkable person He's a spectacular person. He's such an important person that people who don't necessarily even believe very strongly in him have written significant things about them. Here's what one philosopher says. He says this, regardless of what anyone may personally think or believe about him, Jesus of Nazareth has been the dominant figure in the history of Western culture for almost 20 centuries. It is from his birth that most of the human race dates its calendars. It is by his name that millions curse, and in his name that millions... Pray. Right? If if half the world curses in your name, you're a big deal. Here's what Albert Einstein said. He was not a Christian. He said this I am a Jew, but I am enthralled by the luminous figure of the Nazarene. No man can read the Gospels without feeling the actual presence of Jesus. This is a great line His personality pulsates in every word. So with this series that we're beginning tonight, Love Walked Among Us, what this is about is a hundred days of looking at Jesus as a person. It's about a hundred days because it's going to go from now till Easter, and that's right about a hundred days. And the whole idea is that each week we're going to gaze, we're going to linger, we're going to focus on Jesus. And Jesus as a person, not as an an idea, not as a concept, as a person, and not as just like this powerful miracle worker, superhero type person, but a real person. A lot of times, I think when we think about Jesus, we think about Jesus sort of like Superman, Right? You've seen Superman, some version of it. The movie just never goes away. It's always being remade. Right? You, you know the Superman story. And that's sort of how we think about Jesus, that you know, Superman is this alien from another planet. And we watching the movie know the real story. But the people in the story, they seem pretty confused. They don't know who this guy is. And, and he has all these powers and all these abilities. And he kind of pretends to be human. Right? He goes to work every day dressed as Clark Kent. And the most amazing work of all is that as soon as he puts on glasses, everyone gets stupid and they can't tell who he is. Like, this is not hard, Lois. Like, it's the same guy. He just has glasses on. And and, and so he, he, he seems human, but we know the truth. He's really a freak alien from another world. He's not really human. That's how we think of Jesus. And actually, in the fourth century, the church declared that that is a heresy called docetism. The idea that Jesus himself wasn't really a person. He just appeared to be a person, almost like a kind of hologram-type figure that seemed human but wasn't really. That is contrary to the history of the teaching of the scriptures. And that's how a lot of us think about Jesus. And so what I want to do in this next series is each week, rather than going through one book of the Bible, we're going to look at a bunch of case studies of the person of Jesus. We're going to look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Each week, we'll take one passage, and we'll zoom in on it, and we'll look at it, and we'll kind of notice some things that if you were slowing down enough, you would notice, but you probably don't notice because you don't slow down enough, and we'll do that together, and we'll just linger on the person of Jesus and these case studies of how he loved and how he interacted and how he related to people. I think as we do this, I think here's what's going to happen through this series. I think at the end of this series, we will adore Jesus even more. Because you will see, wow, there's no one like him. I also think what's going to happen is we're going to be challenged. We're going to be convicted. And we're going to be taught to love. We study in the book of Ephesians, Ephesians 5.1 said, be imitators of God as dearly beloved children. Well, how do we imitate God? We imitate God by imitating Jesus. And so as we look at Jesus, there's no doubt we're going to go, oh, wow, we fall short. And we need his grace, and we need his power to be faithful. Now, up front, I just want you to know we're indebted to a friend of ours at Redemption named Paul Miller uh, for his work that we've borrowed this series title from. He has a book called Love Walked Among Us, and we've... uh, Unapologetically borrowed the title of this series from that book. Uh, The subtitle is Learning to Love Like Jesus. Uh, We've borrowed some of the structure of this series from it. Uh, And uh, Paul is a guy who has been a faithful pastor and leader for many decades. And over the last about three years, uh, every year, he's come to redemption and he's spent time with our pastoral staff, mentoring us and teaching us, helping us kind of understand who Jesus is and how that leads us into a life of prayer. And so as we were thinking about the teaching series to kick off, this year, we thought, wouldn't it be great if we brought the rest of our congregations in on what we've been seeing about this amazing person named Jesus? And so we kind of borrowed the title and borrowed the structure. Uh, I'd encourage you, if you want to, go go pick up the book. It's available on Amazon. You can get it. It's a worthwhile read. It's very good. Uh, There's a lot in the book that we're not necessarily going to be talking about here, Um, but but there's a lot in the book that we will be talking about as well. And I just want to be clear, we're not teaching that book. We're teaching the book. Okay, this is not a hundred days of Paul Miller's latest thoughts. This is a hundred days of looking at the person of Jesus in the scriptures, uh, though Paul has been an incredibly helpful resource in helping us see some things that are right there, but we just didn't notice. And so here's kind of the direction of this series, the, the way this series is going to flow um, is this series is going to show us five different things over the course of these uh, next 15 weeks or so. First, we're going to see that love shows compassion. That's what we're going to look at tonight. Next few weeks, we'll look at some ways that some things that get in the way of compassion. Then we'll look at that love speaks the truth. There will be two sermons on that. We'll look at how love depends on God. There will be three sermons on that uh, because love is not possible without, your, without depending on the Lord. You can't do it in your own strength. We'll look at how love is energized by faith, how it's actually trusting in God that gives you the energy and the power to, to love. And last, we'll look at how love moves through death into life. That if you're going to love, you're going to embrace walking with Jesus on a path of suffering so that he might then give you a resurrection. That's where we're headed. That's what we're going to do. I think it's going to be really fun. Um, Before we dive into this passage we read tonight, let's pray. God, thank you for your word. And thank you for the luminous figure of Jesus. God, we pray that his personality would, in fact, pulsate through every word. And that like Albert Einstein, we would be impressed with Jesus. But God, we want more than that. Unlike Albert Einstein, we pray that we would be led to faith, to confidence, to trust. That we would follow the Lord Jesus with our whole lives. We pray it in his name. Amen. All right. So tonight, here's what I want to do is I want to look at this story that we read a moment ago, Luke chapter 7, verses 11 to 17. I want to just kind of spend some time lingering in the text, telling the story, making sure we understand what's going on, pausing and noticing some things that we might overlook. And then at the end of that, what I want to do is kind of recap it by showing the three movements of love that we see in this particular story. All right? You with me? All right. So you got your Bible. Go ahead and look at it. Luke chapter 7, verse 11. Right before this, Jesus has healed a centurion's servant in a town called Capernaum. And it says, verse 11, soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd. Went with him. Now, Nain is not a city that is really a big deal in the New Testament, but it is a little bit bigger deal in the Old Testament. It's the area where two significant miracles happened in the Old Testament. Elijah, the prophet, and Elisha, his protege, both raised young men from the dead in Nain. Hint. Hint. So he goes to this town called Nain. You can actually see a picture of where this would be. The Sea of Galilee is there on your right. Up at the north side of the Sea of Galilee is Capernaum. That was kind of the home base of a lot of Jesus' ministry. That's where Peter's home was. That's where the church uh, spent a lot of... disciples spent a lot of time. They go a little bit southwest uh, to this town called Nain. And they go, it says, with a great crowd. Do you see that in verse 11? A great crowd, meaning probably a thousand to two thousand plus people are taking this journey. They're following Jesus. He's teaching powerful things. He's doing incredible works of the kingdom of God. And so understandably, a great crowd, thousands of people are following. So, So he's one crowd approaching the city of Nain. Then it says this in verse 12, As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. So these are two different Greek words. Jesus is leading a great crowd, thousands of people. She is leading this funeral procession, which is a considerable crowd, hundreds of people. So, this story is if you can kind of zoom out, if the camera were to zoom out, you'd see there's a city gate and there's a large crowd coming and another large crowd coming. Now, what are we told about this particular woman? Well, look at what it says in verse 12. A man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother. And she was a widow. Right? This is the kind of thing when we read the Bible, and you do your Bible, and you're playing, you just blow right by that. Think about that. What does that mean? She was a widow, which means this wasn't her first funeral. She'd done one of these before. We don't know if it was recently. We don't know if it was a long time ago. But she's led a funeral procession before for her husband. Now, her only son is the one being carried through the streets. He's a young man, it says later on in the story, so he's probably a teenager or a 20-something-year-old boy. Now think about this. So not only is she dealing with the grief of having lost a husband and the emotional pain of having now lost her son, but think about the practical realities as well. There is no Social Security. There is no Medicare. There is no government opportunity to provide assistance. She's lost everything. She's destitute. She's now on her own. And she's leading the way, custom would tell us, leading this huge procession, mourning her son. Now, we need to maybe think about some of the contrast between how we think of a funeral and how they did funerals. So when we think of a funeral, right, everyone's in black, and there's a casket with the dead body, and that casket is this kind of big, solid, heavy, huge thing. A lot of times we keep it closed. Occasionally there'll be open casket, but mostly, especially when it's being moved, you close it. Um, it's a driving procession. There's lots of flowers to make things beautiful. People kind of weep quiet, quietly. They cry, they're sad, but they kind of try to talk about how, no, we're just sort of celebrating life. That's how we do funerals. That's not how these funerals happened. Rather than it being a casket, this was more like an open wicker basket. it be like a kind of pallet that they had woven together um, with reeds or something, and the body was on top of it. People were carrying it, so everyone could see the body. It was a walking procession rather than a driving procession, no flowers, and lots of loud wailing, not quiet weeping, loud yelling, loud crying, people tearing their clothes. There were actually people who were professional mourners whose job it was was to lead the way in crying. Very different. Here, here's kind of the image that, I, that comes to mind as I think about that, is if you've ever seen stuff on the news where someone in the Middle East, there's a, you know, a young man who's killed or something, and the people are like carrying his body through the streets. You ever seen something like that? That's exactly this. This is loud. This is chaotic. This is emotional. This is sad. So get this. One huge crowd led by Jesus. One loud crowd. Mourning, grieving crowd led by this woman. They intersect near the city gate. Look at verse 13. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Isn't it fascinating? What does Jesus see? I mean, there's a huge crowd, but he's not seeing the body, he's not seeing the professional mourners. He very quickly, it seems like, as he's approaching this, sees her. And he sees her. And he sees the pain she's in. And he sees the loss she's endured. And after he sees her, I mean, he really looks at her, it says. He then what? Had compassion on her. Now, here's a fascinating question. How can you tell When you look at someone, how can you tell if they're feeling compassion? Because what Luke tells us in his book is that he wrote this book based on eyewitness testimony of people he'd interviewed about Jesus. So someone told Luke this story. Luke wasn't there, but he talked with eyewitnesses, and some of them reported, oh yeah, we saw Jesus, and he was filled with compassion. Think about this. What do you see in a person that tells you they're filled with compassion? Which part of their body do you notice? A bunch of you just said it. Their eyes. Their eyes. There's something when you look and your eyes soften. Maybe they fill with tears. But people around you, right, get this. There's a thousand people following Jesus. They're all looking at him. And they all saw something in him. Compassion. And then Jesus moves toward her. It says in verse 13 that he came and said, do not weep. Now, this is kind of a, this feels like a little bit of an insensitive thing, because even though we don't mourn quite like they did, we're kind of smart enough to know, like, you don't walk up to the, the mother of the lost 20-year-old at the funeral and go, hey, don't cry. Like, that's, that's pretty insensitive, right? So how does that square with the idea that Jesus is Compassionate. Well, I think the best way to think about it is that Jesus knows what's about to happen. And because he knows what's about to happen, this is very much like when my four-year-old falls off her bike and scrapes her leg and comes to me and is crying. And I hold her and I say, hey, Mary, 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 don't cry, honey. Don't cry. It's okay. And why am I telling her not to cry? Not because I'm saying, toughen up. Put a salt tablet on it, you big wimp. Like, <laughs> that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, hey, 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 it's okay. Your leg's not broken. You're going to be okay. You'll be fine. You'll be back on that bike in just a few minutes. Don't cry. That's what Jesus is doing. So he goes up to her. He tenderly says, don't weep. And he came up, and he touched the bier, And the bearers stood still. Now, just, again, think about this. How did he, these are two huge processions. How did he stop it? There's no indication that he was like, hey, stop. But rather, he just calmly, coolly walks up and touches this basket that this dead body's on. Now, this would have been scandalous. Because in the Jewish mindset, to touch a casket, to touch a basket like this with a dead body on it, would make you unclean. And there's this amazing reality in the Gospels as Jesus touches lame people, as he touches lepers, as he touches all these different people that would make him unclean. Rather than him catching their uncleanness, they catch his cleanness. That happens over and over and over. And so he goes and he touches this and look at what he says. And again, the contrast, if you go back and you read the story of Elisha, when Elisha in the same area did a similar kind of miracle, he had to lay on the body multiple times. He had to yell all these different things. He had to do all these prayers. It was this whole show. Jesus touches it and says, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother do you see the detail at the end of that verse what is Jesus focus on this whole time cuz to me this is the perfect opportunity to preach Right, Jesus has been preaching about the kingdom of God. Like, this is the perfect moment to go, all right, everybody, I just want y'all to know what just happened. This is a preview of the kingdom of God. If you believe in me, you too will be resurrected to new life. I came to make all things new. Here we go, let's have some preaching. But that's not what he does. Some of us might go, well, let's talk to that kid. I mean, he spent the last 12 hours in heaven. What was he doing? What was that like? Maybe we could get him a book deal. Make a movie about it. What, what, tell. Jesus isn't interested in that. Jesus is not also saying, hey, man, we're so glad to have you back. His focus is all on her. This woman with nothing. This woman who's broken. This woman who, because of sin and death in the world, has been abandoned through no fault of her own. And the whole time, Jesus is focused on her. Do you see it? And Jesus gave him to his mother. She is more important than the miracle. See, that's an important word because sometimes we get so caught up in loving people with action that the actions and the activities of love become more important than love. They become more important than the people that we're trying to serve, not for Jesus. She's more important. He gives him to her And you can just imagine this reaction, verse 16. Fear seized them all and they glorified God. A great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited his people, right? They'd heard the stories of Elijah. They've heard the stories of Elisha. They knew about this stuff. Oh my gosh, this has happened again. And this report about him spread throughout the whole country, whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Isn't Jesus amazing? This passage tells us three movements of Jesus' love that we see. The first movement is this. Jesus' love begins with looking. He looks. Do you see that in verse 13? When the Lord saw her. Now, the way we know that love starts with looking is because, think about it, when there are people or there are situations that we would like to avoid, how do we avoid them? We don't look. You see someone begging, you see a homeless person, you look away. You're in your house, you see books on the floor and clothes and mess and dishes, and you look away, (laughs) she'll do it. (laughs) Theoretically, I mean, guys, we wouldn't do that, really, right? But you, You you see... Something that is going to require your attention, your love, your focus, and you look away. Why? Because when you look, you start to engage. You start to care. You start to get committed. You start to be on the hook. And so you avoid that by not looking, but not Jesus. Jesus looks. So much of the descriptions of Jesus' love and compassion in the Gospels begins with Jesus looking. Let me give you just a run through of these. In Mark chapter three, it says, and he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man with the withered hand, stretch out your hand, and it was restored. It began with looking. Matthew 14, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Matthew 9, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. They were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Mark 10, and Jesus looking at him, the rich young ruler, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go sell everything you have. John 11, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Luke 19, and when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. John 19, 26, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Jesus' love usually begins with looking. And if we're going to follow in the way of Jesus, then we need to be people who look, who see. Now, throughout this series, you're going to be constantly tempted in multiple directions. One is you're going to be tempted to think about how do you love the people kind of out there, and that's important. Are there people at work? Are there people you're around all the time that you see them a lot, but you never actually see them? In fact, you try not to. That's, that's one category. But the other thing you got to think about is the people close to you. I think those are sometimes the hardest people to see people in your home, the people in your family, because you think you see them. So you stop looking. And all of a sudden, people can start to feel unnoticed, unseen, invisible in their own family, in their own home. So this is a, definitely a challenging word for us to say if we're going to love like Jesus, we need to look. But But I want to encourage you, because I know there are some of you tonight who you're not right now thinking about how you need to be better at looking. Here's what you're thinking. You're thinking, I'm the widow in this story. My life's falling apart. My marriage has crumbled. My kids are running from God. My health is declining. I don't know what this diagnosis is going to be. And and here's what I just want to tell you tonight. Jesus sees you. He sees you. You are not invisible to him. You are not irrelevant to him. He is not too busy for you. He sees you. And you go, well, gosh, why hasn't he done something? I don't know. But I do know the story's not over. And he sees you. You're not invisible to Jesus whatever you're going through he sees you now the next movement of love that we see in Jesus is not just that he sees but that he also feels compassion you see that in verse 13 when the Lord saw her he had compassion on her it's not looking and then analyzing that's what a lot of us want to do, right? A lot of times when we start looking, we go, I'm going to, right, this is what people watching is. This is why people watching is so fun because people watching is not about how can I love these people. It's about how can I make fun of these people, right? Like you're looking to analyze them, to judge them, to think, oh, I'm glad I'm not like them. That's mostly what we do, right? And I love people watching, so, I mean, I'm guilty. But, but that's not what Jesus did here because compassion is not about standing back and looking so you can analyze and assess but rather compassion is moving in compassion is moving toward compassion is getting involved this is a big thing that we've been learning in our in our home uh, Molly and I over the last few years uh, I think uh, the phrase we've kind of borrowed I think it maybe originated with a woman named Brené Brown but it's the idea of getting in the well the idea that if if someone you loved were to fall in a well, to fall in a hole, the loving thing to do would not be to go, hey, how is it down there? Well, hey, at least you didn't break anything. Can I get you some food? Right, the loving thing, rather than analyzing it, staying at a distance, the loving thing is to get in the hole. Not to put a silver lining on it. Not to say, well, at least, but to get in the hole. And this is an important lesson for us. We have three daughters. And they have a lot of feelings. (laughs) And I imagine our son will have feelings too, but he's mostly just a caveman at this point. (laughs) But the daughters have feelings. And you know what? As a dad, you know what I want to do? I want to mostly dismiss them and judge them Well, that's silly. Well, just grow up. You shouldn't be so insecure. What are you worried about that for? That's stupid. And Jesus won't let me do that. Doesn't mean I have to agree with every feeling. Doesn't mean that every feeling is equally valid. But the flinch of Jesus is to look and to get in the hole, to move in, to feel with compassion, And then finally, here's the last movement is to act. Is to act. Now, Jesus acts in a remarkable way. Jesus acts in a way that we're not going to be able to act. In fact, I would recommend you do not at a funeral go to the person who lost a loved one and say, Do not weep unless you plan to resurrect their loved one. Okay, don't do that. But Jesus did that and he had the power to do it and he did it. And that's what he could do. Now, when we say act, when we say we look and then we feel compassion and then we act, the, the thing is that we do what we can do. That may not be everything. That may not be everything that's needed, but it might be to do what you can do. I remember a number of years ago when our church was first getting involved in foster care and adoption, vibrant ministry here. So many of you involved with it in different ways. And uh, our church was getting involved with it. And Molly and I were thinking, okay, speed of the leader, speed of the team. We got to get involved with this issue. Like we got to, you know, go, we went to some orientations and we did some different stuff. And a lot of people that we met there, we'd say, hey, what are you thinking about doing? And we heard this a lot. We heard from a lot of people that said, well, I'm just going to try to find out what's the biggest need. And you know what? I really admire that. I think for most people that's foolish I think a better question is what's the biggest need I can meet and that's how we've decided to be involved it's not the biggest need it's not the biggest thing many of you are doing far more as it relates to that issue but we're doing what we can do it also means maybe you do for one person what you wish you could do for everyone maybe you don't every homeless person you see lunch but maybe you do for one what you wish you could do for all of them and then you pray and that's action if you actually do it if you just text praying that doesn't count that is not praying that is saying you are going to pray But if you pray, that's actually doing something. Prayer is action. Now, I hear something I hear a lot. People will hear about something, they'll go, well, what can we do, you know, besides pray? And I think what most of us mean a lot of times is like, hey, I want to do something tangible in addition to pray. But I think sometimes when we say that, what we're actually revealing is this. When we say, what can I really do, you know, besides pray? What we're really saying is, what can I do really? Because I don't think prayer will do much. So is there something I can really do? Thoughts and prayers doesn't feel like much to people. And prayer is a real thing. Because in prayer, what you're doing is you're saying, I can't do everything. I can't meet all these needs. I can't do for everyone what I'd like to do. But God, you can. Would you touch the casket? Would you raise the person? Would you do this? Would you do, God, what only you can do? That is a real thing. That is an act of faith, and that is acting in love. If you do not pray for people, you do not love them. Because you do not ask the God who can move heaven and earth to move it for them. And if you don't do that, you don't love them. Acting comes from feeling compassion. It comes from seeing and it involves prayer. How do we have the power to do this? That's an important question. And here's the answer. We have the power to love like this, not because we have some deep inner reserves of love, but rather we can, be, we can love like this because we've been loved like, like this. Because who are we in the story? <laughs> Spoiler alert, not Jesus. <laughs> who are we in the story? We're the widow and we're the son. We've had our lives devastated by sin. We've had our lives devastated by disappointment, by things that didn't go the way we planned, that didn't go the way we hoped. We were lost and without God, hopeless without him because of our sin. And God restored us. How did he restore us? Because we're also the son, dead in our trespasses and sin. uninterested in the things of God and God in his grace resurrects us and he forgives us and he gives us new life and he pours out this compassion on us and when he does that for us, he gives us now an ability to love like him. How do we do this? It's not by thinking I gotta be more like Jesus. It's by remembering I've been the widow and the son and he saw me and he had compassion on me and he acted and made me new and now I'm going to follow him. That's what this whole series is about, walking in the way of love, knowing God in the person of Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your son, Jesus. He is beautiful. He is mighty. He is tender. He is strong, And he's kind. God, thank you for your mercy and your compassion and your grace to raise us up out of a life of sin, out of a life of rebellion, to give us faith in Christ and to make us new. God, we pray that we could see like Jesus, that we would have compassion and that we would act in whatever ways we can. And God, many times all that's going to be is asking you to act. And God, we pray that you would. We pray that your kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. God, I pray especially tonight for those who have felt invisible to you. God, would you encourage them that you see them? Would they experience your action on their behalf? Would you move in a way that undeniably shows them that you are for them and with them? We pray in Christ's name, amen. Amen.